Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is incredibly bougie, but we recently had dinner at 11 Madison. It's this fine dining restaurant, and over the pandemic, they decided to shift to a plant-based menu. You know, I wasn't really sure what to expect from the menu, but the meal was outrageously good. There were just so many courses, and they had lots of different components, and there was always this little presentation ritual. The food was whimsical and interesting and sometimes delicious, no, often delicious, When you have that many courses being served to you, there were a few dishes I didn't care for. But even then, I recognized that the fault lay with me and not the food. Now, about halfway through the meal, we were invited back into the kitchen, which is eerily quiet. And it was immaculately clean. Stainless steel, these huge refrigerators filled with beautiful, beautiful vegetables. We were fed this maple snow candy, and (laughs) I said... Oh my God, this is like Little House on the Prairie. And then, of course, I had to explain what I meant by that. Anyway, if you have a lot of extra money lying around and you're feeling adventurous, you will not regret an evening at 11 Madison. And they did not pay me to say that. From Luminary, this is the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. I am Roxanne Gay, your favorite bad feminist. On this week's agenda, English with an accent. Growing up, I didn't know my parents had an accent. They were just my parents. Their voices were home. It was only when my brothers and I went to school and our peers met my parents that we understood there was something different about them. American ears can be so very unkind, and children can be very unkind. They would tease us about our parents' accents. They would pretend they couldn't understand what they were saying, and it was infuriating. It only made me love my parents more. Once we did start hearing their accents, we couldn't unhear them. But I always found their voices beautiful. They were warm, and their words were pleasantly rounded. And we also found the way they spoke incredibly funny at times. They spoke fluent English, but trying to shape their mouths into certain pronunciations was an ongoing challenge. My dad, in particular, would add an H before most vowels, so we would ask him endlessly to say American Airlines, and then we would walk around the house singing American Hairlines. Kids are the worst. (laughs) We are just the worst. But my dad was always bemused. He would say, you make fun, but you understand me perfectly, don't you? And we would nod because, of course, we did. We always had. During summers, when I was much younger, my parents would sometimes take us to Port-au-Prince, and in Haiti, we saw a completely different side of them. It wasn't that they were different people. Instead, they were bolder, brighter versions of themselves. We certainly heard them speaking French and Creole at home in the States, but in Haiti, there was a lightness to their conversations, and all they spoke were their native tongues. More than once, I realized I was seeing them as their truest selves. I thought about this when I recently saw the play by Sanaz Tusi at the Atlantic Theater in New York. It's a comedy, but also not. 
about an English as a second language class in Iran, and it tells the story of the teacher and her students, all with very different relationships with the English language. It's very funny, it's incredibly moving, it's painful at times, and the writing is so very elegant and intelligent. The English playwright is my guest today. Sanaz Tusi, at the age of 30, has not one, but two plays opening this year in New York. The second play is Wish You Were Here. And if you missed seeing English and you're in New York, you should be able to see this production at Playwrights Horizons. Sanaz Tusi joins me via Zoom from her home in Brooklyn. Sanaz, welcome to the Roxanne Gay Agenda. Hi, Roxanne. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor on my part. Thank you. I really loved your play. I did not know what to expect because I try not to do too much reading about a show before I see it. I just want to go and enjoy myself or not. Same. Totally fair. I like It's the best way I find. It's the only way. It's the only way. When I read too much criticism before a play, a movie, a book, that tends to shape my experience of the thing. Now, afterward, I will absolutely go and make sure the critics got it right. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely but, same. <laughs> yeah. But before I have no business, it's not, you know, it's none of my business what other people think. So I understood that you kept the fact that you were a playwright from your mother. (laughs) As a Haitian American, I totally get it. Yes. (laughs) Why did you do that? You know, I was, I'm an only and I, I think I saw how incredibly hard my parents worked growing up. Like that was never hidden from me, the hustle. And I thought the only way to make them proud was to do something Correct. Like a a doctor or a lawyer. I knew I was never going to be a doctor, but um, I thought I could be a lawyer. I was going to go to law school. Mm -hmm. And I still think like there's a world in which I would have been a very happy lawyer. But I really had no idea that people could be writers. I was like, how does one do such a thing? Like, where does one go? Mm -hmm. It's funny. Like, I'm Iranian. We have a deep appreciation for poetry and art. And we're a deeply like mystical people. And I, you know, there's something about immigrant culture that says, you got to make money, you got to have a nice house. And Mm -hmm. you only do these things through um, accepted practices, such as like, law and medicine. (laughs) Yes. I used to call law, medicine and engineering the Haitian trifecta. (laughs) Yes. Um, Like the three (laughs) acceptable pathways for a good Haitian daughter. And for a time, I tried. I did. I I was uh, pre-med during my first year of college, and that was a disaster. And then I was (laughs) an architecture major because I thought, oh, that's sort of engineering adjacent. Of course. And it never worked out. Of course. It's so funny, like in Iranian culture, we have, or I should say, you know, Iranian diaspora culture, we have the same, like, you have three options, Mm -hmm. doctor, lawyer, engineer, and the fourth option is absolute failure. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you break the news to your parents that, guess what, I did find a career path, but I'm going to be a playwright in New York? Um. You know, I applied to grad school. I applied to MFA programs secretly. I told only a few people. And I got an interview. At that point, I was like, if I don't tell my mom, I'm lying. Mm-hmm. I'm so close with my mom. I'm close with both of my parents. But I think at that point, I was like, all right, you got to tell her. However she reacts, you have to go to the interview and you can't lie to her anymore. And she was 
so happy for me, Roxanne. She was like thrilled, I think mostly because I wasn't pregnant. And I think that was amazing news. You know, that's that's all the, that sometimes that's the goal. Make sure I <laughs> didn't get knocked up. You know? <laughs> Did you eventually get an MFA? And what was that experience like? You know, I think people who do get MFAs in any creative field have a range of experiences and sure. thoughts about that experience. So how was the MFA experience for you? I did get my MFA from NYU, from Tisch. And I think part of grad school is like, you have to be in a little bit of crisis because I think you have to fail kind of spectacularly to like get the most out of it. Absolutely. So I wrote some terrible plays, like embarrassed, so embarrassed. Like I can't even, I think about them and I'm like, that is horrifying. It will forever be. So what I hear you saying is that they're never going to see the light of day. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And if you know, if you knew me, then no, you didn't, you know. (laughs) (laughs) From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
So I know that COVID changed a lot of people's plans, and it certainly affected the plans of people who were going to be presenting theater, because we could not gather en masse, and that meant that theaters really did have to shut down or innovate. So what was that experience like of seeing the delayed production of something that you're anticipating so much? I don't know. It was really hard. And having it all happen now, honestly, like, this is my first production. This is my first round at getting reviewed. That was hard for me. And I don't know that I could have done that two years ago. Mm -hmm. So what was hard? And because as a writer, I do find I do read reviews. Yeah. And I I do find them challenging. I know that it's part of the process. And I actually know that it's a especially given the limited amount of review space there is for art. I know that it's a privilege that critics will engage with my work. Right. But it's still challenging. So what is difficult for you about the process of being reviewed? And do you read your reviews? Wow. Okay. Well, I want you to talk about this too, because I was like going into this, I was like, you know, maybe Roxanne has wisdom to offer here. (laughs) I do. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly have really struggled with it. And we've been lucky enough to be met with English. We've been lucky to have been met with fairly positive reviews. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of terrified. Like our first preview, the first time we had to let an audience in, I was like, Mm -hmm. you guys like, is this a good idea? Like, are you or we should let them in. What if we didn't? Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> you know, so <laughs> yeah. let's keep it intimate. Let's just keep it crew. <laughs> and my stage manager was like, we have to let them in. And I was like, fine. All right, we'll let them in. And New York theater is tricky. Mm-hmm. If we had received bad reviews, like it makes me one feel like my play would never have existed. And I don't know if that really makes sense, but mm-hmm. I am so proud of what we put up on that stage. And just because we got a good review, like, doesn't change any of that. But it's weird because you, you know, you know, like, you write and you pour, like, your body into what you write. Literally. Literally. (laughs) And one day, you know, the press embargo is lifted and everyone is talking about your play And you're just left there Mm -hmm. with like all the things people are saying about you. (laughs) And even the, there are positive reviews that I, I didn't like, you know, because I was like that, but that wasn't it, you know, Mm -hmm. that wasn't it. And that made me feel, I don't know how that made me feel. I think it will take me probably years to process all of this. And I think you're right. I'm like, this is a part of what we do. It has to be a part of what we do. But I don't know that I'm ever going to be a writer that really embraces this part of it. Mm-hmm. But you read your reviews, right? I do. But I only read, I don't read Goodreads. I don't read Amazon. Right. Like those reviews are none of my business. No. But right. I do read like the reviews from professional critics. Right. For my first few books, it didn't matter. I had a day job. So like, whatever. If the book flops, that's okay. Right. And now it's still okay. But I kind of read through like two fingers. Like I put my hand up in my face, like just (laughs) waiting for the bad part. And I also sometimes just have someone like read it first so that I can be prepared for whatever terrible might be in there. And I've never actually had that many bad reviews. I've had critical reviews and that's actually good. Like, 
don't just swallow what I have to say without questioning it, you know, engage with it. But I do have problems when it depends on who's doing the engagement. Yeah. Because my writing isn't for everyone. And I don't know that if you don't understand my subject position, then I don't know that you can understand anything I wrote in the way that I intended it. And that's challenging. That's a tension, I think. And I live with it. It's fine. But it does concern me. Sure. So, you know, thinking about the critical reception to your show, I read an interview with you where you worried about or were concerned about people laughing in the wrong places or Mm -hmm. laughing at things that were funny, but not for them. Mm -hmm. I felt that both when I was watching the show and also when I was watching um, Fairview. Yes. Sometimes I would look around at the white people around me laughing and think, are you laughing with the show or are you laughing at the character? Mm -hmm. And you never know. And I think I love that you force the audience into that dilemma and like (laughs) implicate them there. I just Mm -hmm. thought that was such a clever, clever turn. I don't know that I have a question, but just I saw that and and I really appreciated that because it brought an added dimension to the show. Thank you for saying that that part of the show, there's a lot of tension there for me. And I wonder, I think like every week I sort of give a different answer but I know mm-hmm. like a few weeks ago when Elham is called Borat, mm-hmm. I mean, there was like, there were like four people in like the second row who were like besides themselves with laughter, mm-hmm. like belly laughing, you know, and it wasn't uncomfortable laughter. It was truly like gut laughter. And that laughter has haunted me a little bit because you and I know how awful people can be toward people with accents. Absolutely. That part has never been funny for me. Mm-hmm. That's like the peak pain of the play. I wrote the play for people who don't laugh there, you know? So like it mm-hmm. has to, it ha- that part is for them. Mm-hmm. There's this line in the play, and I try never to do this, but it is a line to the audience, really. I mean, it's not a dr- directed at the audience. Mm-hmm. And it's when Goli says, I think you come here to laugh at us. To, isn't it so funny how we cannot pronounce the words? That line is so important to me. I think I invite people to laugh. I don't want to trick them. Mm-hmm. But I also hope that laughter turns on itself. And I hope it becomes clear in the play that like that laughter, that like mockery is something that is eroding and it can destroy a person. So... I tried to kind of cover my bases there, but there will always be a tension there. Mm-hmm. Part of theater, part of art, like part of writing is like a release and that release is terrifying mm-hmm. and something I'm learning very quickly. Maybe I'll never be okay with it. And you know, like the the whole conceit of the play is sort of an invitation for everyone to like take part mm-hmm. in all of their struggles. Mm-hmm. And I hope that at the end of the play, that pain is really, really clear. It is. I was incredibly moved. I have not stopped talking about the play since I saw it. And I think partly oh, I was moved you. as the child of immigrants. Of course, and yeah. I understand what it means to have to force your way of thinking and seeing the world into an unfamiliar tongue. And in the play, there are so many different ways where you bring out the the sort of pain of that. 
And we see that all the time, especially because we have the teacher, Marjan, who is hell-bent on teaching English. And, you know, she keeps herself from speaking in Farsi. And then we have Goli, who is so enamored with English. And um, Alham is just so resistant to English, and rightly so. (laughs) And then we have this guy who's just like we later, I don't want to give away the twist, but there's this man who's taking the class who has a real facility for English, but has a real affinity for his Iranian culture. And so the mix of those people and perspectives, I think, really did a great way of showcasing the different relationships people have to English as a second language. So I would love for you to talk a bit about what these characters are trying to grapple with in terms of identity and language and like the sense of necessity that they have to learn English for one reason or another. But then they have to think through what that means for who they are. Yeah, I grew up bilingual. Mm -hmm. For me, it's always been so clear the privilege of being able to like express yourself in the language spoken where you are mm-hmm. and the immense cruelty when your accent is one that is historically laughed at. And it's just easy. I think I, I grew up seeing people treat my parents, you know, as if they were like a little bit less of a person just because of that accent, mm-hmm. because English was their second language. And I never have been able to like understand that because for me, I'm like, hold on now, they speak two languages well. Mm -hmm. They created something here. They created beauty where there was none, a whole life. And I have like lived with that anger for a really long time. And it all really, really came to a head after the travel ban because just the disrespect to me was like, I just just had a, I just white knuckled it and I Uh was like bursting with anger throughout all of that. And I think I still am in many ways, but I wrote this play out of like a really, really intense visceral anger for the way people think they can talk about immigrants for just the sheer disrespect, Uh the privilege of like never knowing what it's like to start new, you know? Uh to have nothing, to feel like an outsider all the time, that really does something to a person. And I needed people to know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I needed people to like hear these characters, be able to express themselves fully so that the audience like had access to the fact that they're about to lose something. Mm-hmm. And I say like, really wanted to talk to you about this too. I- I've said that I don't write trauma plays. I've had a little bit of a change of heart about that. Mm -hmm. Because I think to lose your ability to express yourself, to be treated like a stranger constantly is trauma. I agree. I agree. You know, I think oftentimes when we hear the word trauma, we conjure up like surviving a war or uh, an assault or like a horrific childhood. But I think displacement, even yeah. when it's voluntary, yes. you know, not only abandoning 
the only home you've ever known and the only culture. It's not even abandoning, but separating or being separated from the only home you've ever known and the only culture you've ever really known. And then having to adapt to a new one and then having them not recognize that you were not born the day you reached American shores and that you right. have a whole history and perhaps education and career that you're bringing with you that is oftentimes completely erased because we choose this country chooses not to recognize it. You know, I think that's a profound trauma. And I felt like that was conveyed in so many different ways in the play. And with Alham, I felt it so viscerally. Like that was just my favorite character. Her story, I was like gripped by her particular story because yeah. she was saying what no one else was saying. And she was really forcing Marjan to look into a mirror that Marjan was not ready to look into. And you could see the trauma playing out across every single person in that class, even though they all responded to it differently. And to show the range of responses and the range of ways that people deal with that sort of evolution that is required by immigration I thought was really beautifully handled. Thank you. I think a lot about trauma. I'm actually teaching a class on writing trauma this semester. It's my second time. And I think that humor can be a really effective tool for dealing with trauma. And I, even in my own work, I use humor quite a lot. Yeah. So how do you think about humor and trauma or just humor in general in terms of your plays? Because this one's funny, but you're dealing with actually a very profound subject. Thank you. Yeah, I... I think about this a lot, like, I can't not write something that's funny, mm-hmm. or I can't write something that's not funny. God, mm-hmm. I'm also losing my English as we've done this play more and more. <laughs> <laughs> to me, you know, I think what I mean when I say I w- don't want to write a trauma play is that I think with Middle Eastern narratives, it's so easy to look at that part of the world and say, that place is all trauma, no humor, no kindness, no joy. Uh And I think it's really easy to distance ourselves from Middle Eastern people. And that has been the predominant narrative when I think about Uh stories set in the Middle East. I think both English and Wish You Were Here, they're really sad. And they are actually about trauma in a way, Uh trauma, separation, from a culture, from a language, separation from your friends. These are deeply traumatic events. But leaning into sadness is not the truth to me. Mm -hmm. The truth is, in the Middle East, we have, (laughs) there's so much laughter, there's joy, there's kindness, there's silliness, there's crassness. Like, this is actually the truth. And for some reason, I think audiences have a harder time digesting that truth than Mm -hmm. like a story in the Middle East that centers on a sexual assault, you know? That is the story I think a lot of people are comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to say like there is not oppression in the Middle East. I'm just saying sometimes the truth is a lot harder and I think a lot about what it means to put a story about the Middle East on an American stage at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really dangerous to lean into that trauma story I think it is incredibly flattening, and I think we owe it to ourselves to tell the story in a more truthful way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think about representation a lot and the the narratives people expect when you're writing about Black people, queer people, Haitian people, people in the, the diaspora. 
How do you handle the burden of representation in your own work? I have thought about this a lot, and I think, what can I really do for my community? Like, what can I do for, like, Manasa writers? How can I be a part of theater and open a door for other people and not be tokenized and not let mm. people off the hook? You know, like, oh, we did a Middle Eastern play, so we don't have to do another one for... <laughs> we're good for um, a decade. Yeah, <laughs> totally. We're good <laughs> until the next travel van. <laughs> um. As of right now, I think the best thing that I can do for like our representation is to actually just treat myself like an individual and an artist with extremely specific and particular taste. Like I would love to be at a point where I could like commission other Middle Eastern artists, but I'm I'm not yet. And so I'm just trying to like write the thing that I like knowing, you know, we've had like walkouts who are Iranian, you know, like mm-hmm. not every Middle Easterner responds to this play. It, does it hurt my feelings? Of course it hurts my feelings. I want every Iranian to love this play. And, but it's okay for all of us to have taste and like specific taste. I make you sit through a Shakira song for like a really long time. Mm-hmm. If you're not into it, like, that's your right. Although, why don't you like it? You know, <laughs> so like, what's wrong there? What? Who hurt you? <laughs> who hurt <laughs> to you? To not appreciate the fact that the hips don't lie. They don't. <laughs> if you don't want it, there's nothing I can do for you. <laughs> I'm Katya Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last twenty-five years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry. Every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. One of the things that struck me in the show was the way you managed accents, because you knew that the audience was not going to understand Farsi. And so for those of you who have not seen the show, when people are speaking in Farsi, they speak English. And when they're speaking English, they speak English with an accent. And after about four or five lines into the show, you start to realize that this is the device that's being used to convey the difference between English and Farsi. And I loved that idea. So who came up with that idea? Because it works so well on so many different levels. Thank you. It was not me. A lot of people have referenced translations by Brian Friel. Mm -hmm. I have not read that, but I think that play does exactly that. And I also think it's a weirdly, this idea is something we're like, we're, we actually do all the time, like an Anna Karenina, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in, in the last remake, like they're all speaking British English, mm -hmm. but it's very obviously, you know, that that is a Russian novel and they would be speaking in Russian. And so we understand, I think, when we are watching a film or when we're in a theater, like you're, you're entering a portal and there are things that we're translating for you that don't operate in full naturalism, but that is what we're doing. And I think, you know, like I have had, I have changed how I think about accents a lot. I used to think if I did, if I wrote my family drama, it would, I would use the same device so that mm -hmm. the audience would, would, would know the lives of these bilingual people. And now I feel that I won't do that mm. at all in my next play. That's interesting. Because I think it has value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that they're an audience. Like, I've always known when I watch things, I was like, well, there are things not for me. Like, there, there's, there's a part of every play that's written for a specific experience, and that may not be yours. Mm -hmm. I've always, I think a lot of people of color understand that in their experience engaging with art. And I would like white audiences to learn how to engage with art in that way as well. Not everything is for you. Mm -hmm. But in a play about learning a language and letting a language go, we had to know. We have to yes, know. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, and I, I too believe sometimes the audience has to work for it. And not everything is yeah. for you. And maybe there are things that you're not going to get. And when my students ask, should I translate if I'm going to write something in a different language? And, you know, nine times out of ten, the answer is no. You don't need to translate yeah. it. And it's just not for that person who doesn't speak that language. And they'll be okay because if you put enough context around it, they'll get the gist of what's going on there anyway. Uh, but it's always an interesting creative choice, no matter how a writer chooses to deal with language and accents and difference. And so I was really interested in the way that this show handled that. Thank you. Before I let you go, tell us about the new play that's opening in April, Wish You Were Here. Now, this one I have not yet seen, but I do know that it's also set in Iran. Yes, please come see it. We would love to have you. Um, Wish You Were Here is about a group of friends in Iran who become separated after the events of the Iranian revolution. It's again about separation and loss. And it's also about a group of women being together as <laughs> things happen outside the walls of their living room. I talk mm -hmm. a lot about my period and that's also oh, a bit- Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> 
And again, it's sad, but it's funny, you know, and I mm-hmm. just wanted to hear laughter on stage. I wrote it as a love letter to my mother. Yeah, please come. Have your parents seen English yet? Yes, they came to opening night. My mom loved Wonderful. it. I think mm-hmm. my dad liked it. I mean, I'm not really sure. I've never really, I can't really catch a read on him sometimes. But <laughs> <laughs> I think that likes- speaks for a lot of dads, like he was there. Yes, he that's was what, there. That's and- all I can tell you is that he was there. <laughs> I remember, like, my dad, like, after he saw The Martian, you know, like, he, 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 like, leaned back in his chair and he was like, I was like, Dad, did you like it? He was like, that would never have happened. And I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, all right. Thank you for that takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> Like, first of all, it's called The Martian. We know it's not real. Yeah. So (laughs) I found it to be very convincing, though. I was like, I liked it. What's not to Mm -hmm. like? But, you know, like, I think it was real Mm -hmm. for them. It was really meaningful for me to have them there. Good. Dad doesn't maybe have to like it, but he hope he does. (laughs) Well, they showed up, which I think is awesome. They showed up. Well, Sanaz, thank you so much for joining me. And I cannot wait to see Wish You Were Here and everything else that you write. You have a fan. Thank you. You can keep up with me and the podcast on social media on Twitter at rgay and Instagram at RoxanneGay74. Our email address is RoxanneGayAgenda at gmail.com, and we would love to hear from you. From Luminary, the Roxanne Gay Agenda is produced by Curtis Fox. Our researcher is Yesenia Moreno, and production support is provided by Caitlin Adams and Meg Pillow. I am Roxanne Gay, your favorite bad feminist. Thank you for listening. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. <laughs>